Welcome back, everyone, to Mike for Success. Today, we have someone super special, someone that is very big in the music industry, someone I uh, mentored who he actually taught me at USC. But if you guys haven't, before we get into that, if you guys didn't listen to the last episode with Casey Bear, go check it out, upcoming pop star. But today, we got Timo Priest. He's sound designer, audio tech consultant, musician, and professor at the University of Southern California, Go Trojans. Welcome, Timo. Thanks. It's great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. And for people that don't really know who Timo is, um, he's done a lot in this music industry, which he's going to talk about today, where you get get into his background and working with some big names like Ariana to working for some of the biggest music production tech companies in the world and also sound designing with him traveling all over the world to make sounds. But first, Timo, let's get into your background. Uh, tell everyone, how did you start off? How'd you get into music? Tell everyone who you are. Great, thanks. Um, my name's Timo, and uh, I've been doing this kind of audio technology musician thing for, for a while now and seen like a bunch of different changes and shifts and kind of have, you know, filled in different roles as, you know, things have kind of progressed and, and kind of just remained a bit flexible in terms of what I've been able to do. But um, I started off quite some time ago. Uh, I won't date myself by giving out any specific numbers, but it was like, you know, 40 years ago or something back when <laughs> the invention of analog tape came out. Not quite that far back. But um, I, uh, I was part of this crossover between analog days uh, when the music industry was very different, the way that people learned how to do this job was very different, uh, all the way through the digital age and the shift and, and to see what happened as things moved from you know, physical distribution of CDs and records and things to digital distribution and how that's kind of playing out today and, and how that uh, kind of filters into a livelihood. Uh, like you said, I've kind of done a lot of different things, uh, some of which I, I would consider myself uh, pretty specialized. Other things I would say I have a pretty decent broad knowledge of how the whole thing works. Um, and I feel very fortunate that I've gotten to, you know, kind of dive into these little sections and, and get this perspective not only, you know, here, but in Japan and in Scotland and in Berlin, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. Uh, so I, I like traveling and I like working with people all over the place. And I, and I like the sensibility of seeing how people approach things, both in like recording and mixing and sound design and performance and, uh, you know, multimedia and how even nowadays what it's like to be in this kind of like socially challenged uh, environment where everything is, is virtual and how that that's kind of shaping things. Um, but I would say like if I had to kind of like narrow down, you know, if you asked me what I, what I wanted to do in my spare time for fun, um, you know, I'm, I'm a musician at heart. I got started in this business because I first and foremost love music. I started when I was a kid, uh, you know, played the clarinet because the band director wouldn't let me play the drums. He said he had enough drummers. So um, I, I, I took one for the team, became a clarinetist and moved to bass clarinet. Finally got moved to the drum line. Yay. And then, um, you know, from there, just went through a lot of things like played guitar and then went to school. Um, at UCLA for ethnomusicology for my bachelor's degree, where I was into all different types of world music, which was fascinating because that played into my whole, um, you know, 
I want to travel the world, I want to study cultures, I want to study different traditions and their music. I lived in India for a year studying there. Um, so very, very broad range of, of kind of perspective, which led me at that time to being in a lot of studios, hanging out with cats that were making electronic music and incorporating some of this kind of world music instrumentation, more traditional instrumentation, non-Western. So I lended myself as a, you know, a studio musician for, for these type of Indian, West African, Indonesian type right. instrumentation at the time. So let's start there because you went to school. You mean you played the clarinet, you did all these. I mean, I played the clarinet and that's how I got into music and then mm -hmm. flipped into the piano and taught, taught myself that and started making songs and realized I want to produce music because I'm writing all these songs. And I want to combine everything for your age and you growing up for, I just graduated college, but for me, I was lucky enough to have YouTube. I can go on YouTube and look up Ableton and look up how to do certain sound designs and just teach myself. What about you? You said you worked in, um, in, in a studio. So is that where you learned everything? How did you get into electronic music and producing and learning that technical side of music? Yeah, that's a great question. First and foremost, I guess clarinet is kind of the gateway drug, right? It's like, you got to like pay your dues, you get into, you know, clarinet and then you just go from there. But um, you're right, it, it is very different. Um, education is very different. Nowadays, you have access to so much, it's almost, you have access to too much. Whereas when I got started, uh, you know, these secrets were really jealously guarded and traditionally working in a studio, you were an, you were an intern, you didn't even get to see the control room, you know, six months a year, you had to like, you know, clean parking lots and toilets and go get people their vegan meals for lunch. And you were just a runner basically for a long time. And then people weren't willing to just divulge their, their secret information. So, I mean, I think that was a hard part for people that were studio people coming up and, and, you know, People back then didn't really necessarily have to be nice either. I think people kind of are, are forced to be nice nowadays because there's so much competition that if you're not nice and you're not professional uh, and you don't treat people well and you're not someone that people want to work with, then I don't think you really get work. It doesn't really matter how talented you, you are. Like People are just going to go somewhere else. But at that time, it was kind of like an initiation. It was a really um, tough uh, boys club to get into. Um, so was this in Hollywood? Did you start off interning in one of the Hollywood studios or downtown LA? You know, like that wasn't really my way in a lot, but that's how a lot of people got started. I took kind of a, a backdoor to all of this because of my interest in the world music, which I was talking about. I got to hang out in more of the electronic music producers kind of realm and seeing them working on Cubase and Logic and Pro Tools in the early days and doing recording for them and then just being super curious. Um, and also just, this is the kind of start of seeing these type of digital media labs that were opening up in colleges and the very forefront of working with digital audio. Uh, because before that, it was like everything was hardware, everything was super expensive, like, you know, a sampler would cost, you know, $1,000, $2,000, like it was just, was out of a lot of people's means to, to really play in that world that was, you know, electronic music. And now uh, we can just download it. <laughs> you just download it. And, and yeah, it's kind of like, I've traveled all over the world with a laptop and an interface and a couple of controllers and, I, and I've been fine. And 
you know. So how did you how how did you start off learning all these synthesizers and getting into like the knowledge base on how to use them if they weren't like digital like they are today and you had to actually learn on an actual synth? How did you do that? Right. Well, the synths themselves were still digital, but it just wasn't like, you know, streamlined into a computer and uh, wasn't like really available uh, in terms of anything else other than kind of like keyboards and, and some type of keyboard modules. Uh, just computers weren't really strong enough to or powerful or robust enough to handle the type of processing, which, you know, there became a tipping point sometime in the early 2000s when that that did happen. But um, yeah, it was kind of like hanging out with people that were buddies and then knowing that they were into this and being part of the rave culture and the electronic music culture and going to shows and then meeting people who were producing and then teaming up with those people and just asking a lot of questions and you know, having late night sessions where we're tinkering around with different gear. And then there was <laughs> this whole period, I was living in Tokyo and uh, basically everyone started selling their, their hardware, like old digital synthesizers, like old FM synths, like DX100s and DX7s and you know, old Yamaha stuff and, and uh, you know, Waldorf and, and all of these like really awesome uh, digital hardware synths. And, and people were just getting rid of them for almost like nothing. And that's because everyone started to think, oh, well, you know, computers can do this. Why, why do I need this digital technology when it, it's going to fit into the computer? And part of that's true. You know, I mean, there's so much that your computer can emulate now. I have the Universal Audio Apollo uh, interface and the emulation that's going on in the box is just out of control moves around all the time. You know, I've ha I had a storage for like seven years when I was in Berlin and in Europe with all of this equipment that I've kind of like held on to. And it seemed kind of silly once I actually got it out of storage and set it all up. It was fun, but it's, it's, it's almost um, like overkill a lot of times for, for the type of stuff that... During this whole process, did you have a mentor or any inspiration on artists that you wanted to be like, I assume at one point you wanted to, you know, travel around the world and perform in front of everyone. If you want to explain to people what your music is and that side, which you took a turn to a different direction in the industry, but explain your music and any mentors that taught you, you know, everything that you know. Did you have anyone like that? Um, there's a lot packed into that question. <laughs> um, I have a lot of, a lot of influences and a lot of people have mentored me in one way or another. Um, I don't think it was a direct stream um, because I've been all over so much and have dabbled in so many different areas. Uh, there's definitely a lot of people to give shout outs to that, that have helped me with my career, who have taught me you know, the basis of a lot of fundamental sound concepts. Um, you know, people that have kind of had faith in me and my abilities and my vision. Uh, in terms of my own musicianship, it's, it's funny because when I, when I graduated uh, as an undergraduate, uh, I had a degree in ethnomusicology and I ended up going out in the world and, you know, trying to look for a job and, and realizing, you know, <laughs> you just don't go out and look for ethnomusicology jobs. It's, it's one of those things you kind of got to make work for yourself, uh, which is another reason I kind of went into this whole audio tech realm. Um, so I ended up as, as, a, as a kind of electronic music, music, excuse me, I ended up as an electronic musician in Tokyo 
you know, playing alongside DJs and like playing nightclubs and, and just having a great time, you know. At the same time, I was teaching English. That's how I got to live in Japan. So this whole like teaching and music thing just kind of funneled itself together because I had experience in both realms, you know, step forward years and years later. Um, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to get a bunch of experience because I, I don't think that you can properly teach without having some type of real world uh, experience and just being able to bring that to the table. And I think that's some of the funnest uh, stuff that you can share with your students is just life experience, you know. What was it like living in Japan? I mean, you talked about in class, what's the synthesizer store that's the biggest synth store in the world that you rave about and you, you live there uh, when you're in Tokyo? Right. Anything like that? What, what was it like living in one of the coolest places in the world, especially for electronic music? Um, you see my light, my eyes get all lit up. It's funny because, I mean, I, I think Berlin is equally as charged in, in a lot of different ways in terms of an electronic music city. Um, and I wouldn't say... Tokyo is exclusively an electronic music city. Uh, and I wouldn't say that, that the store that I'm thinking about is, is the biggest store, but it definitely is very unique and I love to go there uh, because it's just so hands-on and, and they just have some really cool equipment. The name of it is 5G and it's in Harajuku. Um, and it's been around forever and it's kind of like walking into a museum because they have you know, a whole modular set up right when you walk in and then They've got a whole slew of just like old, especially Roland, uh, Japanese keyboards, Junos and Jupiters and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like keyboard after keyboard. And the thing is, is you would expect because all of these things are so delicate and a lot of them are just relics at this point in time that you wouldn't be able to actually touch them. But you can, you know, there's headphone stations. Um, if, you're, if you're in L.A., uh, another store that is more modern and you know, focused on kind of, uh, you know, selling what's out now, especially modules and, and modern kind of hardware is a perfect circuit in Burbank. And it's kind of got that feel, you know, like the people that work there want to be there. They are, you know, dealing with a particular clientele of kind of geek fanatics who are interested in, you know, talking that, that, that talk and, and uh, you know, having that, that experience of going and trying things out uh, rather than just browsing through online reviews or something. What about Germany? Because take me through the whole story of you going to Germany and you moved to Germany, you Berlin, and you studied sound design, started creating your own sounds. You showed us your videos and going into chapels and cool places and dead places and hitting things together. And Tell me about that. What was it like living in Germany? And is that where Ableton came along when you started working there? Or take me through. Um, so bounce forward like years and years later, um, probably, I guess it was like seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, I used to teach at a school called Expression College in the Bay Area in Emeryville. And it was a really awesome school. It was like a two-year college for people to get a degree in sound arts. And it was, you know, straight through from, you know, basic recording concepts and audio fundamentals all the way up to like mastering, to live sound, to electronic music performance, uh, studio maintenance, all the way through. And the facility was amazing. Um, it was just one of the, the nicest places I've ever worked in terms of, you know, the people that were there were super knowledgeable and kind of more from that old school, like, you know, uh, 
working on analog consoles and, and you know, they were real recording engineers that had, you know, spent their lives specialized in one thing rather than kind of the new way of, of operating is to be good, to be specialized in things, but also to be quite broad in, in what you do. So I was there, uh, it was after 2008, and the economy just took a tank during that time. And uh, the kind of like founder of the school had investors and he passed away suddenly and his, his daughter took over. And it was just hard financially for them to recover and we kind of all saw it on the downslide and it ended up that SAE, SAE ended up buying it. Um, and most of the people that I knew since then had left and I kind of saw that coming to an end and you know the industry had changed so much from the time I went in to the time you know that the school was collapsing because I, I was there for like 10 years uh, so it was it was one of those California analogies like I saw the wave starting to break and it's like either the wave takes you down with it and you get washed out in the in the uh, white water or you you know turn out and you just paddle out and catch the next wave and so I went to my family and I, I really thought about it um, and I was like, you know what, I, I need to get my master's degree. I need to be able to up my credentials because a lot of times, you know, uh, having a master's degree in, in what we teach, sound arts and, uh, you know, things that are related to audio technology don't really require you, unless you go into a particular vein of it, uh, to have like a PhD. Um, but there are people who do. Uh, so just have that master's degree under my belt and to have the opportunity to go to Europe. So I checked myself into the University of Edinburgh, which is a very, very good school. Um, and they have a very unique program there of academics, of people that do have PhDs, who do look at studying, you know, sound and sound art, not necessarily sound design, meaning, you know, I'm building Hollywood edge kind of sound libraries. Uh, this is more like developing ideas and setups and working with audio-visual, real-time uh, integration. Uh, so I, I was there essentially building these type of performance setups that, that I really enjoy doing. It's all real-time, lights, uh, you know, video synchronization, having multi-channel surround setups, using different controllers and having those integrate with all of this. So that was super fascinating. It was only a one-year uh, intensive course though which was just like shock and awe. So reeling out of that, I would have loved to stay in Scotland. It's a lovely place. The Scottish people are just such lovely people, you know, and Edinburgh is such an enchanting uh, city. It's kind of like an overgrown village. But, you know, the way that the, the, the British system of um, granting visas is, is pretty stringent. So I was like, you know what, I'm not ready to leave. So then I took off and, and you know, Germany is one of the places that supports artists and you can get an artist visa. So I was like, I've never been to Berlin, but I want to live there. So <laughs> packed up, moved all my stuff there that I had in, in Scotland. And then all the sound studying just came along. That's where you made a lot of cool things happen. And are you able to explain more about what you did with the sound design, what the videos that you made? You want to tell everyone what the whole production that you made together to demonstrate sound design and how things work? Well, Berlin was the mark for me of being like completely freelance. Like I wasn't tied to like another job, like a day job. I mean, my day jobs were always cool, like, you know, working, working at the college and stuff like that. 
But now it's like I had to kind of go out and just rely on that. And that was a whole experience unto itself. So I was doing all types of like online consulting and education. Uh, I'm an Ableton certified trainer. So my relationship to them is tied back to, you know, being one of the first certified trainers when they open that up. So I have a really good connection with the company, uh, branching out, trying to see how I can kind of get in without kind of, you know, being part of the company, but to be something that was someone that was contributing to what they were doing. So that's when I started doing like freelance sound design for them. I worked on the Ableton Live 10 uh, sound library. That's part of the stock kind of presets and sounds for that. And I've kind of continued that, that relationship, putting out subsequent packs. And I really love that. But you realize once you get into that type of a position that there's not that much work because it's revolving around products. And unless you're someone like Richard Devine, who I, he's one of the people that I have been greatly influenced by. Um, if you're not familiar with him, check him out. He's done sound design for uh, Jaguar. He just he did one of the first like hybrid like or electric cars where he programmed the sounds. And he's done everything from you know his own musical ventures. But uh, not to digress too much with that. One of the things that I, I did was work for a company called Mac Pro Video, where they did these kind of video courses. You can go in, there's a library pass. Really great content, really great trainers. I always kind of have taken the left side of things, the, the side road, um, and veered off into kind of more experimental, uh, creative, think outside the box kind of concepts. So one of the videos I did with them that, that I think you're referring to that we talked about was called Capturing the Sound of Berlin, where I went out and found a bunch of abandoned spaces that were super cool, super creepy, super, you know, falling apart and decrepit and different states of that. <laughs> and uh, I had a studio in the ex-counterintelligence building of the Stasi who were basically, you know, ruling all of the whole... East German side of Berlin and that was super creepy you know going down to like the the cells where people were being detained in these crazy concrete bunkered uh, rooms and and going down there at recording sound and and using the microphones and and, and uh, the reflections that were being brought back to create things like convolution re reverbs and to capture like profiles of the rooms themselves going to this you know, old ballroom that was falling apart and just capturing uh, flutter echoes off the ceiling. And then putting this into a package where I was teaching people how to do these type of recording techniques, how to, you know, stereo mic something, how to go out and uh, explore these type of abandoned spaces, how to gather found sound. Let me stop right there. If you had to give some advice for those people that probably are listening or like, how, how actually do you do that? What's some tiny advice would you give? In terms of how to get started with that? Yeah, how to get started in making your own sounds, bringing your own stuff into abandoned places. Um, the simplest way to get started, I would say, is just you know bring your mobile device along with you. I mean, the microphones are getting more and more just like dialed in, and, uh, and people underestimate the capabilities of just the microphone on on your mobile device as you go around. Uh, I mean learning a little bit of the fundamentals of sound and how to direct it so that you're not picking up a, up a bunch of background noise, you know, things like that. Just a very little bit of um, just tips and tricks on, on how to kind of begin something like that. 
should should point you in the right direction. But I mean, you should just always approach it from a really kind of playful standpoint, and you'll realize pretty quick like what is gonna kind of translate positively and what's just kind of gonna be garbage. And then you'll start to become more discerning about the stuff that you are trying to capture rather than just record tons and tons of, of content because then you gotta go in and edit all that content. And that's kind of the more tedious part. Um, so being selective about what you record, but also just remembering to do it in the spur of the moment, you know, and to always have this living in the moment kind of appreciation because we as sound designers, we're always listening to what's going on around us and trying to envision how that that could be put into something else. And, uh, you know, listening to artists that, that do that, they, they go out and they record a bunch of found sound and they chop it up and they put it into samplers and then they play it back as instruments and layer it with other like synthesized sounds. Um, one of the things I always try to stress is that the most complex sounds that we can harness are the ones that nature provides. You know, they're just so complex and they are so difficult to kind of recreate in a, in a synthesized environment. But um, we, can, we can put those into things uh, like, for example, additive synthesizers that utilize resynthesis and they can analyze that and then become part of the keyboard. One of my favorite um, virtual instruments is Alchemy. Uh, the guys at Camel later, Apple bought them. And that was part of the merger while I was in Edinburgh as well. Super nice guys. Um, they, they ended up like having their vision kind of streamlined into, into Logic Pro. But that is a, a really cool synth. I know that you know, we had that in, in the class I was teaching at USC. If you had to give advice for for producers, I a lot of my friends we argue about this all day, and I'm on the Ableton side. But between Cubase and Logic and Ableton and uh, Fruity Loops, mm -hmm. is there one best producing software for like today? Because in my opinion, Ableton's the best. You can do the most. You can break down the sound in the most distorted way from one of the best in the world, and I would say, and understand from the Ableton side and know how sound works. Do you have an opinion on? what the best producing software to make sound design is? Um, well, I do. I have opinions, but they're based upon like my own bias and my own workflow. But if I was giving advice to someone that was coming to me, uh, kind of looking to move forward and to you know have the, the perspective that you're kind of approaching it with, um, the thing I stress is it's all about techniques over tools because tools will come and go. And we've seen, you know, Something that's hot right now, like Pro Tools, for example. Pro Tools was like industry standard. When Ableton Live first came out, you know, people were laughing at us who were producing with it, saying, oh, that's just like a DJ tool. You know, the first time I saw it being mentioned in like Tape Op magazine, which is a real kind of, you know, you know, recording engineers kind of publication, and, and for them to even mention something like that was, was a milestone. But, you know, that was one of the secrets to kind of my end to the industry as well. It's like I invested in Ableton Live when it was, you know, something that was a DJ tool that wasn't really even taken seriously to see where it's gone. And, and one of the things I like about Ableton Live and Ableton as a company is that they really do listen to their users and they are trying to put out updates that make sense to, like, push it forward. Um, they were the the company that pioneered the 
nonlinear sequencer, uh, giving you bits of information that you can kind of grab and trigger back rather than just having it going across the timeline, press play, end up stopping at the end of it. You know, here you can kind of mix and match. And I think that, that that's something that all DAWs are going to look like moving forward. We've already seen that being integrated in the newest version of Logic Pro. So, which is interesting enough because there were, I have friends that work at Apple as well and colleagues and they were calling us up going like, hey, what do you, what do you like about live and why is it, why is it important for you? Um, but at the end of the day, you know, all of them work in the same way. They, they all allow you to be creative and if you get hung up on, on tools, you'll just keep searching for more tools and having come from humble means, having, you know, had to really dive into one machine to kind of get the most out of it and to kind of figure out like how I can use this one thing in about 900 different ways. Um, having those type of limitations really did lead to innovation. Right. I always say that like limitations lead to innovation. So if you don't have the latest, greatest thing, or if you don't have that thing that, you know, your buddy has or whatever, you know, don't, don't feel like you can't produce or that you can't like take your things to the same level. You know, like it's funny, we, there was this thing called the, I don't even remember what it was. It was this device. It was like mastering in a box or something, you know, and mastering was such this, you know, alchemy for us. It was just, it was witchcraft and, and, and to get our, our, our mixes up to that standard, you know, we thought, oh, there had to be some plugin that will do that, you know? And so we bought this crazy box that was supposed to be the answer to everything. And we got the box and we're like, okay, well, we're <laughs> doing what we thought it was going to do. And years later, like looking back on that, it was like, of course it's not because it, it, it wasn't about mastering. It was actually about the mix, you know, like, and, and the mix goes about what you're putting into the mix. So it's, it's the ingredients that count. Um, so kind of going back to that found sound thing too, like starting from scratch, you know, if you go to make a pasta, if you have great ingredients, then you're already ahead of the curve. You know, rather than having like cheap stuff, then you got to work harder to make it, you know, into a good pasta or whatever. Right. So, and, like and, and speaking of tools, this is something I think a lot of young producers, especially in today's world, everything's getting super expensive. Um, Ableton I have, I mean, that's a hefty price to get, but in a way of um, patches and sounds and, you know, getting spliced to synthesizers. And I know things are sometimes $600 to a hundred. A lot of young producers try to realize what is the best solution and best way I can produce a song in a, in a professional way, but using the cheapest, you know, cheapest sense, Cheap as anything, because no one has money. A lot of kids don't have money and they can't afford Omnisphere. Is there something that you would give advice to on, it's not about the product, it's about how you make it, or maybe use the house plugins that Ableton has and Logic has? And Yeah, um, I can dive into a lot of different directions with that. Uh, first and foremost, like Logic is an amazing deal. I mean, what you get in Logic is incredible. Um, it is a professional software that's been around for a long time. Apple brought, bought it from eMagic. Uh, the vision behind that is growing in scope. And the fact that it's $199 and comes with virtual instruments and top-notch plugins and is a very full-featured digital audio workstation is incredible. Um, and the fact that now it's got nonlinear 
uh, sequencing capabilities. It's a very nice entryway if you're a Mac owner. So that's kind of the caveat there because you, you have to own a Mac and Macs are getting more and more expensive as time goes by as well. To be honest with you, um, outside of you know, kind of the companies that, that I work for, which I use Pro Tools, I use Logic, I use Ableton Live, I teach them all back to back in one day, you know, <laughs> between classes, and I love them, and they're all part of my workflow, you know, like when I'm recording, I, I use Pro Tools if I'm recording a band, you know, if I'm doing post-production and mixing for television or for some type of a film or video, like the audio editing for it is awesome. When I'm creating music for myself or starting out from scratch, which is kind of like banging out ideas and want to have fun and, and just be very tactile with controllers and things like that, I really go to Ableton Live for that a lot um, because it allows you to kind of take things through that process and make it more like an instrument and an extension of that. Um, I also do that with Logic, but it's, it's a little bit more tied to... Uh, like a more traditional keyboard, for example, rather than um, something like the Push, which is another dedicated uh, hardware controller exclusively and specifically for, for Ableton Live. But uh, with that being said, I really support this, this uh, DAW called Reaper. I don't know if you know Reaper at all. Like, up and coming, up and coming. Well, I think it's more than up and coming. I mean, in the world of like game audio, most of them are already using Reaper. Um, if you're going into virtual, uh, anything that's virtual reality, sound integration with that, there's a lot of tools that people are using to tie um, audio and digital audio workstations into that environment. So for those of you that are kind of like game audio, sound design for games, virtual reality, um, look into using Reaper. And it's brilliant because, I mean, I, I think it's kind of a donation-based uh, DAW and if you do end up purchasing it, I think it's like 70 or 80 bucks. I haven't checked out in a while, but you know, I know a lot of people that have kind of moved towards that. And uh, yeah, the other stuff can be quite expensive, like Pro Tools, Avid, they have subscriptions. A lot of companies are going to subscription models. I know Splice, for example, has the rent to own plugins, which is a great feature. Um, you could try it out, and if it doesn't work out for you, you, know, you could do that impulse buy thing that we all like to do. It's like, oh, my buddy just told me about, you know, Serum. I mean, Serum is one of those things that it's a very brilliantly thought out synth and everyone loves it. You know, it's the go-to go -to sound for a particular genre. And that, that also just kind of not go too far into it. But uh, these digital audio workstations also kind of correlate to a particular kind of, of musician or ideology. Um, you know, different styles of working and why they were developed. Uh, for those type of people. So I think that not only maybe is it something that workflow-wise is more compatible with a direction that you're headed, but also, you know, you have a community of people that are kind of similar to you, like Ableton people. You, you all hang out in a room and, you know, you kind of have that flavor, but hanging out in a room full of Ableton people and hanging out in a room full of Pro Tools people, I mean, you still kind of are, you know, in the same world, but there, there is a different flair and a little, a different vibe to, to the people that approach them. What about Ableton? Because 
you teach a class at USC, a class I really wanted to take, I just couldn't. And it is performing live and using lights and adding that to your music and teaching the whole you know production side that Ableton actually has on their software that a lot of people don't even know. Explain that whole side of, of Ableton. There's a producing side, but then there's the whole producing lights and sounds and making a whole show come to life. Right. Um, that's a really fascinating kind of area that I, I would consider myself a specialist in. I think that's kind of the reason that um, one of the major reasons that I got brought on to USC, I created that, that class and that vision about combining music with performance and technology. I mean, Thornton is an amazing uh, school for music performance and one of the top in the nation. So it was kind of the, the, the stream of consciousness that, that combines the music technology department together with you know, music performance. So you know, bringing young, talented people in and then having a tool for them to be able to take technology and combine it with more traditional forms of musicianship uh, rather than you know, being completely stuck in kind of the more electroacoustic side of things where the computer is the interface. Um, I think now we're seeing that the computer is used in so many different stages of music performance, whether the computer is the instrument or you know, it is providing all of the backing material for you know, artists who have a band, who are you know, singers, songwriters, who just can't have you know, the amount of production element needed to kind of reproduce what you're getting from the, from the album and that experience to come to the stage. So that's kind of where, you know, I've, I've been able to delineate all different kinds of, you know, stages of what that looks like and who comes to the table with it. And that's part of that audio technology consulting gig that I had, you know, like bringing that back to like working with someone like DJ Shadow, where, you know, he's the master of like the NPC and, and he had that particular way of working. And then it got to a point where he wanted to expand that into his world tour for the shadow sphere, which was one of the first times that projection mapping was introduced and like taking super high res visuals and, you know, streaming those onto, you know, three dimensional matter and really cool stuff like that. Um, and just kind of being able to overcome some limitations of the software itself and then come up with some pretty interesting strategies for having people who are touch designer, you know, programmers and, and combining that with taking the MIDI data out of, out of Ableton Live and, and having those kind of join together to create this experience that probably exceeded anything that the creators of Ableton initially thought, you know. Uh, so having now Max MSP, which is an object-oriented programming language built into Ableton Live, um, where you can create your own devices, you know, anything is possible. Uh, playing around with those ideas and, and having, you know, colleagues and friends who are really awesome programmers who, you know, if I need something, I could just say, hey, I need you to create a script that connects, you know, this particular lighting rig to, you know, four of these different interfaces and make a media server to interpret where these are, you know, grabbing things and sending them out. Uh, and just this real kind of idea behind creating a custom performance instrument that's based upon your computer, but not limited to, you know, like a DJ platform or just using some type of a 
traditional keyboard controller. Right. So, you know, working with people like Charlie XCX or Ariana Grande or um, yes. Troy Sivan, I, I got to work with, with artists like that. Um, and I was basically running their playback rig and running a redundant system for that, where, you know, if one computer crashes, there's another computer to take over for that. Having it all synced up so that it does program changes for all the other members of the band so that they're not messing around with trying to, you know, change from song to song or within each song, like what type of sounds are, are coming from their drum right. kits or their, their synthesizers. Speaking of Ariana Grande, someone that is a global icon in this world and you've had a chance to work with and be with her team and be behind the scenes, back backtracking her whole entire show and traveling on tour with her. What was it like being with one of the biggest pop stars behind the scenes and how many things go wrong? How many, like, I assume Ariana was freaking out a lot of time on not things working and you have a pretty big role at the time of making her show all come together. Like what, 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 what went on back there? Well, my time with Ariana was, was limited actually. I did a few shows with her, but um, that was right before she was going on her, her tour. Um, and that's when I got offered the job at USC. So I kind of had to make a decision if I was going to continue down the route of, of doing the, the touring and the performance playback um, or to go teach at USC, which kind of keeps me here and grounded. But then fortunately I have summers to go do the, the touring thing, except for this summer, of course, because of our current pandemic situation. But, um, you know, to speak particular of my experiences with her, um, you know, I can't say that she's ever freaked out. And, you know, fortunately we never ran into a situation where she needed to, but um, you know, when you're working at that level with that uh, kind of A-list artist, I mean, for the person in my job who's in control and in charge of all the technology and everyone's looking at you to get everything working and keeping it working, I have to say it is, it is a very nerve-wracking, stressful position, like getting on a plane, flying from one place to another place, checking in gear, hoping that that gear actually makes it there, hoping that that gear still works when it gets there. Sometimes, you know, it's all pulled apart because, you know, TSA, our, you know, Homeland Security wants to go through it and pull everything apart. Um, so, you know, a lot of times you're scrambling, you're making last minute changes to accommodate what the artist wants to do, having guests come in on the fly. You know, I have, I have colleagues um, my buddies uh, at Electronic Creatives, if you don't know them, Laura Escaday, she's a great person. She's, I would consider her one of the people that is a friend, she's a colleague, but she's also been a, a mentor to me in a lot of ways. Um, she's forged this road to working with these A-list artists and um, has you know, done a lot for me in terms of just giving me the chance to, to be part of that. Um, so check out what she does. I mean, she's worked, she was like Kanye's, um, Ableton playback tech for, for years and years. And she's got, she's got the stories, <laughs> you know, you, you can only imagine what it must be like to, uh, to work with Kanye. I'm sure he's right. very talented and he's a genius, but, um, you know, the more kind of genius that people are and visionary, they don't really worry about the technical details because they're paying you a significant amount of money, hopefully, 
and when something goes wrong, it's like, well, that's your problem. Like, you're, you're the one who I pay and fly across the world to do that one show, you know, like being flown from LA to Jakarta, set up, do the show, and fly all the way back from Jakarta. <laughs> you know, that's, that's quite a journey. For people that don't know, what is backtracking? Like, what, what is that position? What's the role of that person with the whole show that goes on? I mean, once again, it's kind of like case by case. And, you know, that could be something that is kind of like less significant all the way to being like the most important aspect of the show, <laughs> depending on, on how that particular performance needs to go. Um, backing tracks are essentially tracks that musicians on, on stage need but aren't physically playing. So in the case of a, you know, a singer, pop singer, uh, for example, like Charlie XCX, I mean, 95% of what she's doing on stage is backing tracks. So that means, you know, all the, the drums, all the keyboards, all the sound effects, all the backing vocals, um, all of her vocal effects, uh, all of that stuff that's not being performed by her or her you know, additional artist on stage, which in the case of the shows that I did with her, you know, was, you know, basically provided by two other women who were mostly doing kind of per percussive stuff in the background, um, playing on, you know, drum synthesizer, uh, contr uh, MIDI controlled drum synths, and all the other stuff, bass lines, like the main kind of like kick drums, the driving force of it was all, all backing. So, you know, when you're playing to a crowd of, you know, something like Glastonbury, uh, you know, thousands of people there, you know, you're really relying on these computers to do their job and for you to have it operating correctly and making the cues and having that artist look good, you know. But other bands, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's just a couple of things that run in the background that kind of fill in where the other artists aren't doing. But the interesting thing is that people just don't realize that there is that much technology going on behind the scenes nowadays because they see people on stage they see people playing instruments but the level of what production uh, entails nowadays is so significant and such a big part of the music that's being made that it would be physically impossible to get all aspect all aspects of it played live right and then to just kind of segue, one last part of that is it can also be triggering, you know, the time code that gets sent out to the lighting director. It can be sending out another kind of time code that gets sent out to control um, things like pyrotechnics. I mean, basically you are sending out streams of uh, the audio that are going to go to the monitors, in-ear monitors for the artists themselves. Um, via the monitor engineer and that signal also goes out to the front of the house which is the, the mixer that's mixing the show so you have you have all of that and when you are flying and, and those computers <laughs> are in a in a pelican case that you carry on the plane with you you just pray that you get there <laughs> you get there because if you don't get there you know you are the person that actually has the show um, in in your possession so, yeah, it's crazy. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's um, unlike anything else, like the level of just like adrenaline that you get doing that job. Um, 
it's, it's fun to do, but I, I, I can honestly say that it takes a very special person to do that full time. You said if you have to do a choice, traveling takes a huge toll on your body. Yeah, just the traveling, not even doing the show. Um, just not sleeping, being in a different time zone uh, all the time. I mean, it's kind of different when you do do a proper tour because you're on a bus, you're normally doing like a specific region. Once you do the show, you're back on the bus, you can sleep, you can do whatever. Um, you can, you know, set up the same way every, every single time. You don't have to worry about, you know, checking everything in at the airport and, and dealing with what it comes out as at the end of the, the journey. So yeah, I mean, tour, touring, you know, when you're on a bus and you're in the same country, it's relatively, I think, a bit easier once you get up and going. But yeah, these one-offs where you're kind of flying from one country to the next, right. it's, it's fun. It's fun, but it's crazy. I think people have so many dreams about performing around the world, but don't understand how much goes into it. And I know there's probably people listening that are like, I don't want to perform. I want to do what you did. I want to work on a show with a song like Ariana or Quinn or Justin Bieber or Martin Garrix or any of these top end people in the industry. How do you get into this? I mean, kind of briefly talked about it at the beginning, but I mean, is it kind of like just look at the draw? You just got to teach yourself the skills or find someone in the industry that can teach you it. And because all these things behind the scenes are pretty technical and pretty, how do you design a whole show of lights? That's something, can you go to school for that? Um, I mean, it was part of my master's program, but the only reason it was is because I was interested in it and I took that on as some independent research that I did. I mean, I, I, um, I don't necessarily think that it's, it's like you do this, you get this. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship between if you do something, this will happen for you. I mean, this, this industry isn't like that. It's, it really does take a lot of initiative and drive and like creatively thinking outside the box. Um, and if you have that kind of a mentality going into it and you're a person that's good at being social and you're able to, you know, be humble about what you have and what you do and what you can bring to the table, you know, you might be able to, you might be able to work with someone who you admire. And, and especially, you know, if you're a young person who is just starting to get into the industry, um, you know, get out there as much as you can, meet people, have great connections with them in meaningful ways. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like, you know, people want to know what you can do for them as much as, you know, want to know what they can do for you. So it can't be one-sided on either direction because if you're working for someone and they're not really kind of reciprocating this type of an energy, then like anything, you know, it's, it's a dead end. So you, you kind of have to think about that as an energy exchange. Uh, right. There are like, you know, there are avenues to learn more about this, uh, especially for the whole playback side of things. I mentioned once again, like Laura Escaday, she has that company, Electronic Creatives. And the, the one thing that, that she offers is this um, opportunity called MasterTrack. And MasterTrack is specifically geared towards teaching people how to use that technology to work with art artists in that uh, playback tech capacity. She also offers another course, um, Transmute, which is more geared towards helping artists facilitate their dreams using technology, which 
probably has crossover between those, you know, like some artists want to have a redundant computer system, you know, where you press one button, it syncs up two computers, and if one goes down, then you can switch over to the other one, you know, having three different computer setups, you know, the way that this uh, music tech performance class at USC is going to go off in spring is going to be way different than it was last spring and the spring before it, and, and part of that is who's coming to the table, you know, what these people want, because it's a custom thing. It's not like, this is how you do it. And, and that's the fun part about it, because it's a reciprocal relationship between the people that are approaching it. And, and what I really like to stress about that opportunity is, it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm an electronic musician, I want to play a MIDI controller and control virtual synths. And, and I, I like to stress that, you know, if you are a guitar player and it's your dream to be a singer-songwriter, then that's cool. You don't have to become, you know, the stereotypical electronic musician to incorporate computers into it. You can do that in really awesome ways. And, and most of us... Ed Sheeran. I think Ed Sheeran is a perfect example. Yeah. Using a looper, using all, even the Ableton looper, he brings the whole show together just by looping a bunch of things, which is amazing. And a lot of artists are now noticing that and seeing it's a great show. Tosh Totana, same thing with her. It, it's crazy. Like some of those artists like are using the same technology, but it's not even obvious. You know, some people want to hide the technology. Some people want it to be, you know, the computer under the table where no one ever sees what's going on. But then other artists are completely embracing it, you know, and they've, they've made that part of their, their performance. So, you know, it just kind of reiterates that idea that everyone is going to have a different take on it and, and how, you know, in the forefront that technology is, is going to be determined by what your goals are and how you want to interface with it. So, right. you know, it's, it's up to the person that, that's exploring that avenue. I think having some type of an idea about what you want to do is the first part to all of this. I actually wrote an article for Ask Audio magazine. If you do a search for um, Timo, Timo Priest and building a custom performance setup, something of that nature, it's an article that I believe kind of gets people at least brainstorming. And it's fun because, you know, most people want to approach doing this, building a performance setup from the technology aspect. Like, okay, how do I take this tool and, and equal, you know, something that is going to be performative? And, and I kind of discourage that because once again, you're looking at that tool's perspective. You're not looking at the technique's perspective. Start by thinking about how you want to make music, how you want to perform music, and then use the technology to support that and not the other way around. Right. And to wrap this up, which will go on with that, I think the biggest question for young people like me today, if you're 18 years old or 22 graduating college is, do you need to go to college to be in this industry? Do you need to like, how do you, I don't even know how to explain. Is there one way on how to do it is like, do you need to go to USC to learn all this stuff? Or is it better off that you save your money and go to, you know, Symmetry Academy and all these one-on-one -on -one schools that are just teaching music? You talked about it. What type of artist are you? Are you a singer, producer, but do you really think you need to go to school nowadays to learn this? Or is it more just go to personalized schools one-on-one? -on -one? Um, I mean, I've been to kind of both things. Most of what I know is because I taught myself or I put myself in the position to be around people and, and I was good at observing. And, 
You know, a lot of times I took jobs that I really wasn't particularly qualified for, but I knew that I could do it. I could do it if I busted ass and I applied myself and I did research and I really, really wanted it. And, and that's how I, I got to where I am today, you know, all the way, every step, you know, it, and every time I did a gig with these artists, you're always going, can I do this? Can I actually make this work? And that's, that's that thing, you know, that's that adrenaline. Uh, it never stops. It never stops. You have to have that attitude. Like the only thing that's constant is change. Uh, I do believe in education, being an educator. I've worked, you know, from vocational schools to private tutoring, to online education, to creating video courses, to being a professor at a school like USC and seeing what people pay for tuition to be there. Uh, I think that that is a very viable avenue for people, but I don't think that that's what it is. I don't think that that's what's required to get someplace. And I would definitely say that just because you did get a degree from a place as reputable and a department as reputable as USC, that uh, that is not going to guarantee you employment. Nothing's ever given to you. No such thing as free lunch. It's true. And it's not just even just work. I mean, you can work hard and not get anywhere. We've all been in that part where you're just like, you're working hard, but you're not going anywhere. You're spinning your wheels, you know, like it's, it is this delicate balance of being good at having some social skills and networking, uh, being a cool person that people want to hang out with is a huge part of that. Um, being talented, having some creative vision that's not just a regurgitation of everything that you're being fed. Um, you know, you can, you can watch all of these YouTube videos, but you're either an innovator or you're an imitator. And I think that you need to be able to imitate things. Like when someone says, hey, I need you to do that, you know, there is definitely a, a, a role for that, especially if you're working on sound libraries where they want you to, you know, make something that sounds a particular way for a particular genre. I think that, you know, that takes its own talent, being able to reproduce something that you hear and build that from scratch. But at the same time, you know, you also have to have a, a signature sound and a creative vision about who you are as an artist or who you are as a programmer that contributes to people being interested in what you do. Um, as a little plug, you know, my music project that I've been really excited about for the last several years is, is something that is more reflective and meditative and works with, you know, natural frequencies found in the universe based on like Kepler's uh, logarithmic data of how planets are rotating and the speed at which they do that and then transposing that into frequency and then doing compositions from that and to just work with people in ways where, you know, it's very introspective and it's very personal and you know, that, that has been a really fun exploration for me. And it has a context that is unique to, to me. And it has meaning to what that means to me. And I think that that, because it's exciting to me when I share it with people and I do that performance, that I can connect on a way that's really genuine. And I think that people, especially nowadays, um, are bombarded with so many options that when you do give them something that's genuine and they are able to feel that, that it goes, you know, deeper and, and finds a level of appreciation that kind of exceeds what we, what we get <laughs> a, right. a lot of times just 
you know, being bombarded with. If you had to give this last advice for someone that's listening that wants to get into this industry, throw your advice on them on how to start, where they should go, how hard they need to work. Any tiny little advice that some magical person at the top mentor told you that you can give that insight to this young person. I think one of the best pieces of advice that anyone ever gave me was life is not what you're given, it's what you negotiate. And uh, that's that's a, a very important thing to remember. Like you don't have to take everything at, at face value. But the other thing to follow up with that that I learned after I learned that bit of information was you can't overestimate what, what you're negotiating either. You know, you got to kind of realize what you're worth and what you're going to get out of the situation and, and what, you know, what the dynamic is between that. So don't always think you can go in and, you know, there's a way to go about finessing and, and, and negotiating that I think is an important thing. But at the same time, use that as a, a method for, for pushing forward in positive directions that are not going to limit you to be inside a box and at the same time respect the people that you're you're dealing with that's amazing but anyways thank you timo for coming on and for people that don't know t with the really cool o timo go check him out on i'm going to tag all of his stuff and all the articles and videos that you can see timo in you want to apply to usc and officially probably take one of his classes i highly recommend it but Everyone listening, don't forget to go like and subscribe on everything, all the socials and Spotify, Apple Pod, and everything else that is on there at Mike for Success. But thank you, Timo, for coming on. Thank you for giving your wisdom. And hopefully a lot of people learned a lot. I learned a ton and learned about this music industry in a whole different way than just seeing some star on stage. But thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And I hope that it's uh, some valuable information or at least entertaining for your audience. Thank you very much. Tuning out everyone.